you uh, and our Bible passage today from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's through verse 16. Concerning married life, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God, and one has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, music group. Well, uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever been to a 3D movie, uh, but if you have and you've taken off the special, very, very special um, glasses that they give you, uh, you would see something like this. Uh, that's Mario. Uh, and it's fuzzy because they do things with polarised light, I understand, so that you see one image with one eye and the other image with the other eye, and so then it looks three-dimensional because that's how eyes work. Um, but you look at that without your glasses on and it just looks like a mess. It doesn't look like anything particularly. And I want to suggest to us this morning that if we uh, come to uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and other parts of the Bible too, but particularly something like 1 Corinthians 7, and we don't have uh, the right glasses on, that is, we have our cultural understanding of life uh, over our eyes, when we read this passage, it won't, will not make sense. Uh, it will seem hard, it will seem unreasonable, it will seem weird, it will seem fuzzy, uh, we won't know quite what to do with it. And so we need uh, glasses to read this word and... Um, not Joseph Smith's glasses, if you know what Joseph Smith is, but uh, 
different and better glasses, the glasses that are found at the end of uh, chapter 6. We read it last week. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. And that understanding of who we are, who we are to God, if you have put your faith in God, who we are, uh, is the only way to understand what Paul is saying here. Otherwise, as I say, it seems very odd. When he's talking to us about marriage, and that's what we're focusing on to a large degree this week, though in coming weeks, uh, not next week, but we'll sort of continue with marriage and so on next week, um, but the week after in particular, we will uh, get to uh, the latter half of the chapter, which is really about singleness, one of the most important, uh, really the only uh, passage which deals with that directly in the whole of the New Testament, what it means to live as a single person for Christ. So, we will come to that. Um, And if you're not married, I apologise, perhaps some of what we do in the next couple of weeks won't be so relevant for you, but I hope uh, it is useful nonetheless. Well, what is... Uh, what is Paul talking about here? You'll notice, actually, at the beginning of verse 7, he says, now for the matters that you wrote about. Uh, Paul, uh, at this point in 1 Corinthians, starts responding to a letter that they have written to him. Uh, We don't have that letter, we don't know everything that was in it, but they asked him lots of questions, and you'll see uh, there's a number of sections that now about, now about, now about. He's responding to them what they've asked him. And what did they... What was the first thing he addressed? Well, it's there in verse 1. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, it's a little bit uh, difficult for us because what the the, the actual uh, literally says, uh, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, uh, which I'm going to assume, it's a brave uh, interpretive choice, that it's not about girls' germs. Um, But about something else entirely... (coughs) Uh, indeed, probably the, the most accurate modern-day euphemism that I'm willing to use anyway, there are others which I won't use, uh, it is good, good for a man not to have his way with a woman. In other words, uh, the focus of this euphemism in the, in the Greek is, is very much on the man and very much on the man uh, taking his sexual pleasure uh, from a woman with, in a sense, not really a lot of thought about the woman herself. And so they've written to Paul and they've, they've suggested that this is, um, this is how they should live. Now, if, if you were here with us last week, you might think to yourself, hang on a minute, uh, last week uh, they were asking Paul, or at least he was telling them, that it wasn't okay to sleep with prostitutes. I mean, these two things don't seem to go together terribly well, but obviously there were different factions in the one church. And actually, uh, both of those views that it's okay to sleep with a prostitute and then on the other side, maybe we shouldn't have sex at all or a man shouldn't uh, have sex with a woman, uh, come from the same uh, root view of the world that we looked at last week and that is Greek dualism. That is the view that uh, you are really a spirit uh, encased in a shell which is your body. The the body is bad, the spirit is good and eventually your spirit will get to flee the body and, and go elsewhere. And so, one group 
looked at that and said, well, then it doesn't matter what we do with our body, that's who we looked at last week, so it doesn't matter if we sleep with a prostitute, it doesn't matter what we do, we can do anything, because it's just a body and we're going to get rid of it eventually anyway, that's what they thought. But there were other people then who said, well, the body, therefore, if the body is not that great, then anything uh, that comes from the body, we we need to treat with suspicion. So all the desires of the body, including uh, desire for food, but also sex, needs to be viewed with suspicion. And so then you get uh, what has been called asceticism, that is, you, you try and restrain all desire. Now, that ends up as you might, if you know your church history, that actually ends up back in the church through the monks and so on. You know, they deliberately wore Hessian bags, essentially, and and slept in the cold and had poor food and so on, because they didn't want to fall into the sin of of fulfilling their desires. Uh, That Neither of those is correct, but that's what's going on here. Now, the focus is on men rather than on men and women in this, in this thing that they've written to Paul, because in their way of thinking, it's not as we would often, or our culture would often say, that, oh, well, you know, sex is something men want, you know, men have a stronger sex drive. No, it's not, really, that's not what's going on here. What, what, the reason it's, the, the comment isn't addressed around men is because, in a sense, men had all the power when it came to sex. Indeed, the, the patrofamilias, the, the head of the household, Uh, actually had authority over all the bodies, if you like, in his household. And so, he was free, it wasn't frowned upon at all in that culture for the the head of the house to have sex with his female and even male slaves. That was just, he, he had that right, who could deny him that right? And so, that's why they come from the male perspective. Now, Paul, of course, to a, to a degree, agrees with that. He's like, yeah, um, if, that's, if it's just all about the man, that's, there's a problem there. And so he says, but he doesn't entirely agree, and so he has a corrective. Verse 2, but since sexual, rela- sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Now, you notice immediately there's something different about what they came to Paul with and what Paul says because they, they talked about the man only but it's immediately obvious, isn't it, that Paul is talking to both men and women, husbands and wives, and he's doing that equally. And in fact, uh, if you uh, were to read through the whole chapter, including the bit that Lisa already read for us, you will see that's exactly what he does. Each time he's speaking to men and women equally. In fact, it's almost always a a mirror. (laughs) What he says to one, he says to the other. Now, I think he does that deliberately, he, he takes the time to do that because this is so radical for them. In, in fact, I think it's hard for us in our culture to, to grasp how radical this is for them, particularly given what I've already said about uh, the fathers, the father's authority in the house. I, I sort of, as I was re- reading that, I, I imagined... Uh, them, them cracking open Paul's letter, and there's the church. They're all sitting around, and and uh, and you know the husbands are there, and the wives are there, and they may be uh, sipping on a bit of red wine as as the as the person reads the letter for them, and uh, you know the, he reads out the first bit. Uh, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and it's like, hey, 
And then, and then the next bit, uh, uh, each woman should have with her own husband. I was like, well, yeah, okay, that makes sense. You can't have one without the other, obviously, that's fine. Uh, and, then, and then the husband should fulfill his marital duty. I was like, hey, I'm going to fulfill my marital duty. Yeah, drink, boys, yeah. And then, but then they get to verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body. Yes, yes, of course. I mean, why did we even need to say that? That's so obvious. And then the second half of the verse, in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. <laughs> what? What? Oh, my goodness me. They would have been falling on the floor in shock at what, how, read that bit again. That's got to be, no, that can't be right. Cross it out, wide it out, we can, this can't be there. But, but that's what Paul does. He makes them completely equal. Man and woman, husband and wife. And as I say, that, that's, that's followed on all through the passage. Now, what I find kind of fascinating is that what would have been extremely liberating for the women in that church as they heard that and in that culture is now possibly seen as dangerous in our culture. Because... You can't, from our cultural perspective, you can't tell someone, especially not a man, that he has authority over another person, especially not their body. That's dangerous. He could misuse that. He could dis demand sex from his wife. He might be abusive. And yes, that is true. I am sure there are men who have read these verses and misused them and taken advantage of them. Uh, this is not a power to be used over someone to satisfy your own desires. That's precisely what Paul is combating. On the other hand, I want to just stop a moment and use this, uh, this command as an opportunity to think about how it is that our culture deals with the problem that other people can take advantage of us, that other people might sin against us, that yes, in the extreme case, some other people might abuse us, but, but in a more general sense, that people are selfish and can do sin, and sin against us. Like, how, do we, how do we deal with that problem that, that we live in a sinful world with other sinful people? You see, the way I think our world would have written this passage and maybe you feel it should be written that way, is that it should say, the wife has authority over her own body and the husband has authority over his body. Full stop. You have autonomy. Now, there's some truth to that, of course, and, and the way uh, this is written in the Greek is, is, is uh, again, difficult. But, but the way it... it captures that, that sense that we have, uh, we do have ownership, is that, you'll notice that it says, the wife yields her body. It doesn't, doesn't say the wife does not have authority over her own body, full stop. It says, but yields it to her husband, or another translation, it, but it belongs to, but there's a sense of voluntary belonging there. So yes, we do have 
authority over our own bodies, but here we yield it to the other. But you see, the way our world deals with sin is through autonomy. It says, I need to be in control of myself. I need to be entirely and completely self-sufficient. I will ask nothing of you and you will ask nothing of me. I will become entirely sufficient, as I said, and so that I am not dependent on you and therefore you have no power over me and I will be safe. I will become entirely self-sufficient so that I'm not dependent on you in any way, so that you have no power over me, therefore I will be safe. That's how our culture now deals with the problem of sin. And it's understandable that we deal with it that way when we have no other recourse, (laughs) when we have no shared morality. But there's a problem. It's understandable, but it creates a problem. If I'm autonomous from you, if I'm not in all dependent on you, if I'm an island unto myself, what happens? I become isolated and lonely and cut off and every problem in my life becomes mine alone to deal with. And community requires shared responsibility and shared commitment to one another. You see, there are people, in, there are people, <laughs> there are government ministers in some countries now for loneliness. And everyone's scratching their head about why is that happening? Well, I, that, that's why it's happening. Because we, we think that the way to freedom and safety is autonomy. Well, what does the Bible say? The Bible says you need to love each other sacrificially. See, it, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't actually ask the question, how do I protect myself? It asks, what should I do for you? It's, I should love you sacrificially. Now, you know, but that could be taken advantage of. Yes, it could. But one... It's not loving for me to let you take advantage of me, so in love I will stop you from doing that and that will, that will completely change the approach to how I do that. If, if I'm stopping you from taking advantage of me out of a sense of pride and how dare you take advantage of me, I'll, I'll come at you one way, but if I'm doing it out of love, uh, this is not good for you, I'll come at it another way. But the other thing is, we know someone who came and loved sacrificially and was treated poorly don't we? Don't we know someone like that? Yeah, we do. Who took the risk to come into the world to love us sacrificially, to give of himself, to love rather than be ser- to, to be loved, to serve rather than to be served, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. He is our model. And as we love each other like Him, we create a beautiful community together. And as we love our husband or wife, our spouse, in a self-giving, sacrificial way, we create a beautiful mini-community together. And so Paul urges 
the husband and wife here to give themselves to each other, to yield authority to the other for the good of the both. Can it go wrong? Yes. And if you ever find yourself saying to your spouse, you need to have sex with me because Paul said, I have authority over your body, that's time to take time out and perhaps ring me, one of the elders, or a close friend and, and talk to someone because you've, you've found yourself in a, in a bad place and, and actually there are deeper, more significant problems in your marriage than just sex. If that's where you're at, you're, you have much more significant problems. And we'd love to help. We'd love to talk you, to you and help you through that. Now, what about our lens? We said we're going to look at this passage through a lens, the lens of you are not your own, but you belong to Christ. Uh, How does this fit with that? Because actually, it seems to kind of almost be in contradiction to that. That is, uh, how does my body belong to my wife if if I've just said my body belongs to Christ? Uh, I don't think Paul's contradicting himself. I think what it shows is the, the high value or the high place that God has for marriage in His design of this world. That is, He, he takes seriously the two shall become one flesh and, and He values our promises to one another and our, and our connectedness to one another. So that while I do belong to Christ, I also belong to my spouse. In fact, later on in this chapter, He says this, But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. And I don't think there's any other place where a writer of the Bible says, well, a person's interests are divided between God and something else, and, well, that's okay. <laughs> right? it's just, it doesn't happen. Uh, now, he does also say, spoiler alert for a few weeks' time, that he says that it is better, that's what he's arguing in this, this section, that it is, in fact, better to, to be, have an undivided devotion to the Lord. So... That's, uh, that's perhaps controversial, but that, that's, that's what he's going to say, and we'll see that in a few weeks. But the, the, he doesn't say it's wrong. That's the point. He doesn't say it's wrong to have this undivided atten- uh, attention or interest toward God and your spouse, because God has such a high view of marriage. It's important. This relationship is, is central to his design for the world. And in fact... It's in belonging to Christ that we are actually able to yield ourselves to another. So it's not that they're in contradiction, that one is actually necessary for the other. You cannot yield yourself to your spouse, either sexually or in any other way, until you are confident in your, in your position with Jesus, that is, you are loved and cared for and, and saved by Him. Your meaning and your purpose and your strength and your, the, all the resources for loving others comes from being loved, first of all, by Christ. And that's not just for marriage, but for, for all relationships. We love, we serve others out of having been loved by Christ first. 
And so this is possible, it makes sense, because we know we belong to Jesus. Well, um, Paul goes on in verse 5 and says, Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He says uh, something a little bit similar in the beginning of those verses that we were just looking at, verse 2, but since sexual immorality is occurring. And so he almost seems in, in these kind of two verses to be saying, well, here's, ha- here's why you have sex in marriage, just to avoid sexual temptation. That's it. And you sort of think, what? Not terribly romantic, Paul? <laughs> um, okay. But it, go- but it gets kind of almost worse more confusing, shall we say, in verses 8 and 9. Now, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Again, we're coming back to that uh, in a few weeks' time. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. Oh, well, okay, Paul, I guess I'll just go do that then. Um... It's odd, isn't it? I mean, again, it's not terribly romantic. It, it, and it's almost as if he's in la-la land. I mean, who, how, how does he think anyone's supposed to do that? Just, oh, I'll just go get married then. Um, what, what is going on here? Well, first of all, it, it's, it is important, I think, to say that God, and, and one would assume, therefore, Paul, um, as he writes here, uh, inspired by God, is is not against romance and love and, and you know, those, those sort of delightful things that God has built into the creation. Uh, in fact, there is a whole book dedicated to romantic love and that is Song of Solomon. You, you can go read that and though the poetry is bewildering at times, it's still clear enough that this is about a, a, a romantic, loving relationship between a young man and a young woman who end up getting married and so on. I mean, the, that, the Bible is for that. That's good. That's part of God's creation. So, Paul's not kind of just being blandly pragmatic here. But, he is speaking from the point of view of your body does not belong to you, it belongs to Christ. And it's through that lens that we can understand what he's saying. Take, for example, the, the thing on, the, the verses there on prayer... What's he saying? Well, he's saying that an issue might come up that you want to dedicate time of prayer to. This is not... Um, your, <laughs> I don't think he's making reference here to your daily prayers. You know, That doesn't make any sense. So he's talking about a long-term prayer, a long-term need that you have and you want to dedicate yourselves, your husband and wife, mutually agreed, notice again, uh, to, to praying for this issue. A little bit like someone might fast from food uh, in order to pray, so you might fast from sex. But he, he says, don't be silly about it. Don't try and be overly pious about it. Uh, don't say to yourself, well, uh, I need to pray for this issue. Uh, I'm going to abstain from sex for a hundred days 
You know, I'm going to be a champion of prayer. I'm such a godly man. I'm going to do that. And then, like 30 days in, you're just struggling with sexual temptation. But no, you, you stick with it because you're, you're, you're so godly and pious. Well, no, Paul says, don't, don't be silly. Don't be, it's, it's the same with food. Oh, I'm going to fast for two days straight and, and give myself to prayer. And the rest of your family's thinking, oh my goodness me. Let's, um, let's go away for two days, folks. I don't want to be around him when he's grumpy and hungry and so on. No, don't be realistic about what you can do. Don't try and be overly pious. That's what Paul's saying. Uh, and deal with sexual temptation. Why? Well, because you belong to God. He's not being unromantic or... He's, he's just being realistic. You belong to God. Same reason you don't let yourself get too hungry and therefore grumpy at everyone, because you belong to God. And you need to serve God. But now, when, he, when we come to the verses on, on the, for the unmarried, and I think he is talking to the, just generally unmarried, not just widows, um, or widowers, which... You might have a note that says it could be widows for the, for the word unmarried. Um, he could be talking about talking to people already betrothed because when you, or, or engaged, because when you get to verse 36 and following that, he, he talks to people who are in the same, uh, about the same topic uh, who are already engaged and he gives the, basically the same advice. So he could be just uh, kind of foreshadowing that here. But I think actually he's just talking generally to people who are unmarried. And again, it, it's very hard to understand unless you understand that we belong to Christ, that we are not our own. You see, what is marriage for? That's a question we could ask. What is marriage for? I think we've made our lives more complicated, that is, we in, in the West, because we the stories we tell ourselves are that marriage is for me, for personal fulfilment. It is a way of seeking happiness and fulfilment in life. It's to make me happy. And I hope if you're married that your marriage does bring you happiness. But that's a very limited view, isn't it, of marriage? for personal fulfilment, to make me happy. And it puts an unbearable burden on your marriage because no spouse can make you happy. No person can make you happy. Not ultimately, even if you enjoy their company very much. Now, other cultures have seen other reasons for marriage, uh, community and building society and having children and bringing peace between warring tribes and producing an heir and so on. Uh, some of greater value than others, no doubt. But what is marriage for? We need to know that because what we think marriage is for will uh, shape the way we approach it. It will shape the way we evaluate it. Is this a good marriage? It will shape what sort of partner you look for. What is marriage for? 
Well, at the top of the list, surely, has to be that we belong to Jesus. We are bought at a price. That means even our marriage, that most personal of choices, even that must be done in service to Jesus to whom we belong, so that we honour him with our whole self. And so, if the best way for me to resist sexual temptation is to find a marriage partner who I can have sex with, then that's something that I should pursue. I do not suggest that you go and say to a woman or a man, I'm sexually tempted, let's get married. I don't think that would work. And it, does, it, it doesn't also let you off the hook of dealing with sexual temptation in other ways. We saw last week, flee sexual immorality, take radical action to, to deal with sexual temptation and other kinds of temptation. But, if I am marrying for the sake of Christ and not for personal fulfilment, and not in a desperate attempt to find happiness in this life, then that will shape the sort of person that I marry. And it will hopefully help you remove from your list of requirements in a spouse worldly and unhelpful things. Now, let me, let me be really clear. I am not saying what you need to do is lower your standards and find anyone who will marry you so that you can... No. But, if your view of marriage is, I am getting married so that I can serve Jesus, and so that I can continue to serve Jesus, and so that I'm not unnecessarily tempted, and, and so on, if it's all about your relationship with Jesus first, then that will shape the view of the partner that you are seeking. And that, again, I realise that in our culture, in our time, in our world, at this point in time, there's all kinds of structural problems in meeting someone to marry. And I'm not saying if you make this change in thinking, suddenly a, a spouse will drop out of the sky, uh, hopefully not injuring you. Um, the, but, but if you have changed your view on marriage so that it is not about personal fulfilment, but it is serving Christ, it will also put you in a position to wait patiently for him to provide the person that he wants for you to do that with. Now, I've said some stuff on singleness and there's much more to say, but you can see the point. We, we will not understand what Paul is urging here unless we have this view that I am not my own and even my marriage is not my own. We are bought at a price. So honour God with your body and therefore your marriage. Well, as I uh, prepared this week, uh, my intention originally was to continue uh, speaking at this point and get to talk about uh, verses 10 through to 16. But I got to this point and I realised I'd already said too much and I didn't have space to deal with what are very important issues of particularly divorce. Uh, and so... Uh, 
Now, you might say, well, I can think of some things you could not have said earlier, so, you know, saved us all a bit of time. But um, but we're, we're going to deal with this stuff on divorce actually with probably what fits better with it, the, the passage in 17 to 24, which we'll, we'll look at next week. So let me finish with this. If, as I've said, even marriage, this intensely personal heart decision, right, this, this thing which, as I said, every story uh, tells us is, is to help us to live happily ever after, if even that must be... Uh, submitted to the authority of Christ in our lives because we, because we belong to Him. If that is true, even that decision, then that means absolutely every decision must be submitted to Christ. Everything. And I point that out because it struck me as I was contemplating these, these truths this week, how easy it is to wake up in the morning and live as though I'm autonomous from God, <laughs> free to pursue my happiness, not just in marriage and, and sex and so on, but in, in all sorts of areas. It, it's the air we breathe, isn't it? You don't have to train someone to think and make choices to pursue their own happiness. I mean, the Americans even put it into their constitution, for goodness sake. Or is it something anyway? Declaration of Independence, who knows? I don't know. We, we think that we have the right to, to pursue in our choices what will make me the most happy, the most fulfilled, the most whatever. And Christ comes to us and he says, No, you were bought at a price. Live for me in everything, in everything. And actually, that turns out to be the only way to find happiness and joy and satisfaction and meaning and purpose and everything else. When we live not in slavery to our happiness, not in slavery to sex, not in slavery to anything else that drives us on, not in slavery to trying to find the perfect marriage that will finally fulfil me, but in loving slavery to the, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who died and came, came, to, came to this earth and died in our place to set us free from all of that, to live for Him in every single way, in every single way, in every choice, in every moment of every day, because He deserves it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we want to confess to you that so often we live with a sense of autonomy, with a sense of the, the freedom to, to choose for our own happiness. And we think we deserve it. And yet, Lord, you've freed us from that. You've freed us from the disaster that that leads to. And you've brought us under the authority of Christ and we belong to him. And we pray that you would help us not only 
to submit ourselves in marriage, whether we are already married or not yet married, that we would submit our choices there to, to Christ, but that we would submit all our choices to Christ so that our entire lives are lived for His honour and for His glory, to delight in Him, to enjoy Him, to make Him known, to savour who You are, so that we might find true freedom and joy in Christ. Father, thank You that You forgive us and You rescue us from our foolish autonomy and you bring us to our loving saviour Jesus Christ to follow him forever and we pray that you would help us to do that that we might delight in him all the more we pray in Jesus name Amen